Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 541 with my guest, Dr. Gregory Kushnick. We're going to be talking about narcissists. Um... My name is, I forgot what my name was there for a second. My name is Paul Gilmartin, and this is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. It's a place for honesty about all the bullshit rattling around in our heads. Uh, it's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. Uh, not a doctor's office, more like a waiting room. Let's get to some surveys. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Joe C.D., and uh, he writes uh, about his struggle with OCD, like I'm in a house of mirrors that has no way out and I don't know which person I am. And then a snapshot from his life. I was a naturally gifted athlete, but I was so miserable from constant OCD that doing the one thing I was good at, football, was one of my biggest sources of pain because of all the constant rumination about my performance. I was the star running back on my high school team and I purposefully fumbled the football on the one-yard line, resulting in the loss of the playoff championship. It was the most selfish decision I ever made because I couldn't stand one more minute of being on the field. I took a giant achievement away from myself and my friends to escape my own anxiety. Wow, thank you for sharing that. It's, it's amazing. The intensity of the anxiety we can experience about things that other people have no idea that's going on inside of us. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Inland Outsider, and they ask, do you have any favorite video games that have really stuck with you or moved you emotionally? Uh, not moved me emotionally, but definitely moved me uh, intellectually. And I'm having to take a break from one of them. I think I've shared about it on the podcast, uh, this this golfing game that I have in my house called Golden Tea, and I've just been escaping into it. And um, I'm taking a break, and it, it feels like a withdrawal. It's not pleasant. 
This is from the Struggle in the Sentence survey filled out by <clears throat> a woman who calls herself Here We Go Again about her depression, like cold leftover coffee on a raw, rainy day. About her anxiety, like I'm an ant swirling down the shower drain. About her OCD, like everything falls short of being enough, good enough, smart enough, safe enough. It'll never be enough. About her PTSD, like your brain is a machine gun that fight that turns on fully automatic with no notice. About being a victim of a sex crime, like I don't count as a person. Thank you for sharing those. Yeah, a lot of people think that people who've experienced sexual violation, that the thing that they're struggling with is the memory of the event itself. And for most of us, it's the ripples of the event that we're struggling with. You know, difficulty trusting, wanting to isolate, depression, you know, acting out sexually or withdrawing sexually, sometimes going back and forth between the two. This is uh, from the same survey filled out by Shane and about his PTSD. He writes, Oh, God, do I love this one. I feel like every person I meet is a threat and intends to harm me, but I also need them to love me. Wow. Wow. That is so profound. That is so profound. And isn't that just the the struggle of being a human being? I feel like every person I meet is a threat and intends to harm me, but I also need them to love me. I guess there are some people that don't feel every day like just being out in the world is threatening. I can't imagine what that's like. We are sponsored this week, as always, by BetterHelp Online Counseling. Uh, If you've never tried online counseling, give it a shot. How do you beat not having to leave your living room? sitting and crying on your sofa. Uh, I've been using BetterHelp for many years now, and I've gotten so much out of it. Um, if you're interested in trying it, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part uh, so they know that you came from this podcast, and then just fill out a questionnaire, and if they have a counselor they think is a good fit for you, they'll match you up with one, and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if it's a good fit for you. And they are licensed in all 50 states. You need to be over 18. If you're not, they'll direct you to teencounseling.com. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by QFWFQ. And uh, about body dysmorphia, they write, body dysmorphia is like looking into a mirror and seeing a stranger wearing your face. I've read many of these about body dysmorphia, and this one, I think, hit me deeper than any of the other ones that I've read before. This, I don't know, the, the, for somebody who doesn't suffer from body dysmorphia, um, it's sometimes hard for me to wrap my head around what somebody else's experience is like, but um, boy, that one was really uh, well said. 
And then finally, this is a happy moment filled out by T. And she writes, My new therapist is a cunt. I fucking hate her. Living in emotional numbness didn't hurt. Who is she to make me face myself? Is this why therapy is called work? Because it is fucking hard? She is such a cunt. I can't wait to see her again next week. I just wanted to get the fuck away from my life. You know, I couldn't have felt any lower. Grief, guilt, shame. Why wasn't I born a girl? There's a switch that gets flipped in my head. I'm supposed to be a girl. I experience being treated like an animal. How can a just God... I have a vomit fetish. Let humans do this to each other. Help! I fucking flew over the cuckoo's nest. My wife's losing it. I thought it was all about me. I don't know what to do. I would have committed suicide if I could have watched my funeral. A Polaroid I found of my mother um, naked in a dentist chair. And my body doesn't quite... I think I did eight days in L.A. County Jail. ...fit how I see myself. What was it all for? Why are my friends dead? Everything that I did, there's a comfort in the scars for me, was in service of OCD. You've already had all the paper cuts. Step away from the paper. It's really hard to see the picture when you're inside the frame. You know, it takes a larger view to see your life. Just actually have somebody listen to you. Yeah. And I got up and got my tooth and left. <laughs> I'm here with Dr. Gregory Kushnick, who is a uh, licensed therapist. You're you're based in Manhattan, and uh, when when you reached out to me, one of the subjects that you mentioned that you could talk about is you have a list of signs that you're in a relationship with a raging narcissist. And I thought, wow, a lot of people would probably like to know, am I crazy or is this person problematic? Uh, talk about that. First of all, welcome. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, where, where do you, where should we begin in talking about people who are in relationships with a, with a narcissist? I think it can start with uh, some warning signs. Uh, I think that's a pretty good beginning. Yeah. So uh, you would know if you're in a relationship with a narcissist. And some of this, though, is it's not binary in that some of these, are, you're not going to, it's not yes or no. You kind of have to put these together and figure out uh, if the if the whole picture points toward being in a relationship with a narcissist. Because a lot of partners might uh, occasionally do one of the things on this list. But uh, I assume that if somebody is a narcissist, they're going to check a lot of these boxes a lot of the time. That's right. That's right. Some of these are agreements and they actually work for you and you're, you're happy about it. It fits in your view of a healthy relationship. Um, so one, uh, thing to look out for in, in seeing if your, uh, partner is a narcissist is, uh, how they relate to your success. And that is that if you are suddenly doing well or receiving more admiration than usual, if you're getting more attention, if you're getting a, a raise or a promotion or some added admiration, you would see them have a problem with that. You would see them act out, do something that would make you feel badly for your, you know, uh, positive uh, achievement. So it's, they might try to f try to find something negative in it 
you know, be it, well, you're, you're working an extra hour a, a night now. Uh, that, that's a problem or shouldn't you reconsider that? Or I don't know. I'm just throwing. Yeah, they, would, they would probably act in a very, in a way that shows their insecurity. They would seem threatened. They would put you down. They would minimize your, your accomplishments. They may try to steal the spotlight almost making you feel badly for this because it's it's a threat to a narcissist if their partner is uh, achieving something and and gaining notoriety or power Mm -hmm. uh, this is something that you'll see it brings out uh, it can bring out the worst in in a narcissist Um, because it's not about them it's not about them yeah and in that that is a problem when someone is hungry for admiration power success and and suddenly that is being directed toward their partner it's it's a threat it's experiences i would threat. imagine also that that for some people they might also kind of uh use it to enhance their image so they make that their partner's success all about them maybe bragging about it or something something Absolutely. like that what the the through line it seems like with narcissists is are they making it about them? That that's correct. Uh, I, I like to use the word self-referential for that. I think it fits so perfectly. Uh, it's something to look out for, you know, and, and it's something that people seem to relate to when I throw that word around. They kind of it's something. It's almost like it can be measured. Like is he, is he or she self-referential? Is does he bring everything back to himself? Right. Um, and you know enough enough about me. What about me? You know, this kind of right. Uh, and I, I think a good question to ask yourself if you're in a relationship with somebody is: Does this feel like a team, mm-hmm. or does it always feel like it's me versus them? Somebody's winning, gaining an advantage. I mean, that to me is a really bad sign uh, of of a relationship when you feel like you have to take angles on things rather than just being open and honest and knowing that person's in your corner, not that they never question things or, you know, uh, have their own foibles. But uh, when you, when you get that sense that somebody you're on a team with somebody, it, to me, it's unmistakable. It's a, just a really great safe feeling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is something uh, that I try to, of imbue in couples if they're in therapy or someone tells me they're starting out a relationship and they want to know how to build it the right way. Uh, I, I often say that you have to, uh, your job is your partner's happiness and they have to commit to the same thing so that it's as close to 50, 50 as possible. Uh, it's usually not 50, 50, but it's the idea, you know, very simply that, you know, you, you win when they win. And it's your job to make them happy. And that involves a sacrifice and it involves uh, the ability to take on their perspective in addition to your own. It's, it's the notion of there being two rights in every relationship. And this is very hard for people to do. You know, I'm right and he's right. Even if I don't agree with him, he's right. According to him, he's right. So what do I do given that there are two rights here? Right. And a narcissist has a big problem with that one. It's very hard. What's in the, go ahead. It, it's just very hard to achieve. Okay. With, mm-hmm. uh, what's the next one on the list? Oh, I, I would say, and the most painful one is is just the lack of empathy. 
um, experienced by a narcissistic partner and that they, they, they won't validate you. They put you down. Um, they use your suffering as an opportunity to kind of, uh, add salt to the wounds. Um, they, they don't take care of you. They, they don't become nurturing, but rather, um, they're, they're just unwilling to feel anything positive for you to, to, to uh, empathize with what you're going through. They can't feel what you feel. And this is devastating. It's scary because, you know, it's often people often associate it with uh, like a sociopath or, you know, something more serious. When, when someone uses that word, like he has no empathy, it's like you know, a light goes off, you know, oh, you know, should we look into whether or not he's a narcissist? So that is uh, very painful when you're in a relationship with someone who really has an underdeveloped sense of, of empathy. Right. And obviously it's on a continuum. It's not black and white and all psychopaths and sociopaths are narcissists, but all narcissists aren't sociopaths and psychopaths. Absolutely. Is that correct? Absolutely. That's right. And and the word narcissist is really just something we throw around. It really, it's not a clinical term. It's just a, a descriptive term that means right. a lot of different things. Yeah. Aside from narcissistic personality disorder. Correct. They're yeah. different. It's actually a different. Have you ever come across somebody who agreed that they had narcissistic personality disorder? Uh, it's very rare, you know, it's very rare. And this is, this is actually why there's a lack of data on it. It's the narcissist kind of refuses to, or just can't have that self-reflective function to be able to come in and say, Oh my, I think I have narcissistic personality disorder. Doc, please help me. You know, it's, right. it doesn't work like that. They avoid therapy. Right. Um, so it does happen. Occasionally it happens. Um, after a lot of pain and suffering, it, it usually, I mean, people won't say I have NPD. They'll just say, I'm, 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 I think I'm a narcissist. Right. Um, and it's usually uh, after something really bad has happened or the, the wife, for example, will say, you know, I'm divorcing you unless you go and get therapy because you're destroying our, our family. You're destroying our children you know, you're, you're ruining my life. And the only way we can make this work is if you get therapy and you have to accept that you're a narcissist and get help. Is it possible for somebody who is a narcissist to develop empathy? You know, I think so. I, I think so. There aren't that many former narcissists, but I, I think when I say that that's more like there aren't many former people who are diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder and, and, you know, they did something about it and they're no longer a narcissist. There aren't, there aren't many former narcissists in that way, but right. people can move on. I mean, I, I've had a few success stories like that, but for the most part, eh, it really doesn't happen that often that there's a, a real appreciable change, but it does. It, if the timing is right and they're kind of at the bottom, usually it happens when they hit rock bottom. Mm -hmm. um, there's an opportunity and with, I, I would call it one to two years of weekly therapy. Um, it could be more, it could be less, but everything has to line up the moon and the stars. Everything right. has to be perfect for this to happen, but they kind of have to be broken and, and with no other option 
to actually make that change. That, and that brings to mind, I'm a recovering addict alcoholic, and that, and that brings to mind what happens uh, when you hit your bottom and you finally ask for help and you start going to a support group and an examination of your life and your attitudes and your actions mm-hmm. uh, is, is worked on. And through the help of other people, your selfishness is pointed out, not in a shaming way, but in a way of, hey, the common denominator in all this chaos is you. Are you going to own up to your part in that? You're you're self-obsessed, all untreated addicts. uh, And I would say even addicts who are in recovery are self-obsessed. They're they are wired to think about themselves probably more than the average person. But the thing that that is great is that if they're really doing the work, they are able to catch themselves and to and to readjust. That in my experience, and I'm talking to the listener, I'm not I'm not speaking to you. Ninety percent of what I'm saying is just chiming in with you. Obviously, you know all of this. Yeah, I, I, you can look at narcissism as, as an addiction, by the way. I think that's, that's a legitimate comparison in that this constant need for praise and admiration is an addiction. It, it truly is, right? You get angry when it's taken away from you. Uh, you'll, you'll kind of do anything to get it. Yeah. Um, it does mimic uh, you know, alcohol or drug addiction in, in, in some way. Yeah, I also find self-indignation to be drug-like. There are are people that I've had in my life who just don't know how to not be upset about something and to feel a sense of moral superiority. Uh, There's something that feels like home to them with with that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what's uh, our next one on the list? Um, I, I think uh, it's uh, seeing uh, what you're looking for is kind of a, this two-faced mentality. And that is that they can seem so charismatic and charming and confident and loving and, and, and wonderful with people and everything uh, seems like it's working for them. And then when they have some kind of uh frustration or uh you know the the waiter messes up their food and maybe acts a little bit dismissive they go off right in other words when they're frustrated they have very low frustration tolerance when they're frustrated they lose it so you want to see how they treat other people especially people who they don't view as powerful or Mm -hmm. um you know on their level and this is it's a scary thing to see because you, you think this person is, uh, you know, I, I've heard stories, you know, someone's on a date and they're, she's so charmed by his, um, you know, his charisma and, and how he holds himself and then something goes wrong and he just, just destroys the, the waiter or the bartender. Um, and this is, you know, it's a terrible sign, this two faced, uh, presentation, it, it really points toward uh, needing more information in order to get serious with someone. And I imagine they're very well versed in explaining things away. Oh, I had a bad day. You know, when they're called on things, mm-hmm. there there's never uh, a real looking inward and apologizing. Right. Oh, no, it's it's all externalized. Uh, there's a denial and a, and a projection 
they, they make it about other people. Um, interestingly, though, there, there is um, a kind of a, a version of a narcissist, which is more covert, which is someone who tends to, when they feel that sense of hurt, they tend to become very um, self-loathing and they kind of retreat, you know, people who uh, have some kind of uh, big uh, embarrassment at work or something goes on and they, they literally retreat into uh, a very private place and they're just not uh, available anymore. And they're kind of nursing their wounds and they feel like a victim Mm -hmm. uh, this is this is a kind of narcissist that people don't think about very much. Everyone always yeah. thinks about the narcissist as this, you know, charming person who's in the front of the line. But some narcissists, when they feel this insult to their ego, they will go back and kind of, you know, deal with their wounds in, in private. And it, it can mimic depression. Actually, mm -hmm. some people get confused with that. It can look like someone who's very depressed. And I've come across that a lot uh, with with people uh, who I'm friends with. And the thing that I usually notice is they have no interest in getting out of their self-pity. It's, it's like an addiction. And it occurred to me one day that the really grandiosity and self-loathing and self-pity are two sides of the of the same coin because they both involve an obsession with self. That's right. Absolutely. It's people see them, you know, traditionally they're thought of as, as these very confident people who don't have insecurities, but it's quite the opposite. They're extremely insecure so that, you know, when they're getting the attention and the admiration, um, you know, they, they're, they're doing great and they're on top of the world and you know, preoccupied with themselves. And, and when they're wounded, they're also, you know, as self-referential as they can be kind of, uh, you know, trying to nurse their narcissistic wound, their, their injury. Right. And they're they the most really, wounded person in the world and that nobody is right. understands. That's right. And then, and they are seeing the world as a victim and uh, externalizing the blame and talking about how the world did this to them and not owning any part of it. Um, and this is a, a kind of a narcissist that people don't properly identify yeah. And, and the partner for that person, any attempt to validate or sue them is throwing nickels into a black hole. It, it will never be mm -hmm. enough because there's, mm -hmm. there's no connection. The, that person is not making yep. any connection because they just uh, want it to be all about them. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, very uh, difficult. You kind of have to let that play out and, run its course. And then, I mean, if you're, if you're the partner of someone who's going through this to sort of give them their space and right. um, tell them you're there for them and remind them of some of the good things. Um, but really it just has to run its course. And then uh, they're just going to need uh, some wins to be able to build themselves back up. But it's very challenging if you're the partner of a, of a covert narcissist. Yeah. And, and, and the the other thing I think you will find, too, if you're the partner of that person is there's no recognition or thanks that you're there for them. It's just understood that you are 
there. There's, there's no real gratitude on their part, you know, for, for me, a true friend. And not that you need the person to say, Oh, you're such a great person. Thank you for coming over. But at some point, maybe down the line, Hey, you know, I just want to thank you for being there for me with, with a narcissist. It, there's just not, it's just not on their radar to, uh, say, wow, this person really went above and beyond and I'm touched by it. Right. There's a complete absence of, of, of gratitude in that way. Uh, it's purely seen through the lens of what, what they can, what can be done for them. You yeah. won't hear them giving a thank you unless somehow it serves their needs to look like someone who's, who's thankful. Um, this is actually a phenomenon I see on Facebook. I was just telling someone about this, uh, People who are more in the narcissistic realm who um, who will post things that they're doing that are you know made to convince everyone that they're living the life, and they say in their post how thankful they are for this and that. Right? It's like I'm so thankful. The humble for brag. Hundred million dollar yacht. You know, yes. I could be more thankful. Yes. And it's really just a way to post it. You know, that in the spirit of our culture right now, where we expect people to have gratitude, but it's really, it's quite toxic. I find it. Yeah. And Hollywood is filled with it. I'm so humbled by this, you know, the post I'm so humbled by my, the award that I won. Yeah. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Humble people usually go and post something for a hundred thousand (laughs) people. You know, you know, what's humbling is getting fired. That's I'm humbled. Right. Oh, man. Yeah, it's a uh, that that's a that's a big one though. When when you feel like very simply, like you're saying that you're not getting thanked for little things and and, and big things. Another one that stands out, another kind of um, uh, catchphrase that I like to use is pathological certainty. This is often a, a sign, and that is people who can't be wrong, people who mm-hmm. uh, are really obsessed with uh, there being one opinion. Um, and, and, and that's it. And they're not willing to tolerate anybody else, uh, who disagrees with them. Kind of like the idea of, you know, saying there's two rights in every relationship. This right. person just can't see that. And they find fault in, in other people if they don't agree with them. And it's on a pathological level. Uh, it's very hard to be around these kinds of people. And, um, I, I've found that I've, even in terms of friendships and otherwise, when I, when I, I shed friendships, you know, that point when you're um, you realize you don't have to hold on to all your friends when you can move on from the people who don't make you feel better about yourself. Oftentimes I found I had the most sensitivity to people who had this pathological certainty who had to be right. And it often gets into finance and politics and these kinds of discussions. And it's just this toxic feeling that kind of makes you just sick to be around that. Even though they could be very bright and admirable and, you know, the smartest person in the room, that certainty is just suffocating. Which, which I think feeds it even, even more. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's, there's a sickness to people who rely solely on their intellect for the idea of success or the ability to navigate the world safely because it, it completely rules out uh, human connection, which there there's... Um, it's, it's just a different realm, you know, yeah. it, it, matters of the spirit are 
just not even seen. It's a, it's about like everything is a, a card hand that's being played to, to win. Yep. Yep. Uh, that's right. What, you know, there, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, there's another kind of uh, narcissism that I think is, is also uh, not talked about so much, but is, is really sort of under the radar right now. And um, it's referred to, um, as the communal narcissist. And this is people who, who do lots of um, volunteer work and they donate and they make it look like they are in touch with all the world suffering and they're so admirable and they seem so spiritual. Mm-hmm. That, when you said spirit, that, that reminded yeah. me of this kind of a person, which is very, you know, we see also this on social media. These people are often the influencers and they seem so generous and so in touch with you know, the suffering of some group. And if you just go right below the surface, they they don't give a crap about that group. It's just something that serves and, you know, it's sort of a source of narcissistic uh, support to be able to, you know, donate and be seen as this very uh, giving person. Yeah. The people closest to a narcissist know the, the that real person and it can be really frustrating because the outside world is charmed by them when mm-hmm. you i grew up my my mother uh i believe is a is a narcissist and uh you know she's done charity work and there's a side to her i believe that's that's that is good and really wants to to do better but it is it she's so trapped in her own survival of having to think about herself all the time. And I, I believe it goes back to her childhood where there was a lot of trauma and abandonment. And I'm not excusing what she does, but the, when I began sharing my experiences with her and the things that she has done and said, people that knew her just refused to accept it. But the people that do know her, they they get it they get that there's two different, there's two different people. Right. Right. Yeah. That's, that's painful that they, they hurt the people closest to them, but from the outside, they're charitable and charming as can be and confident um, and really can be the center of, of attention and, and, you know, the, the uh, source of people's admiration, but family knows them very differently. Mm-hmm. That, that dichotomy, you know, represents uh, kind of a warning sign. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, that's, that's very, very painful to, to see. You know, before I got sober, I would class my, classify myself as, as one of those people. Uh, I think I was very charming to the outside world. I, I, when I was doing a TV show, I wanted... I wanted everybody on the set to love me. And and it wasn't necessarily that I wanted to make their day. I wanted them to um, talk positively about me. My biggest fear was that people were talking negatively about me. And that's probably still sadly very much the case. Um, But I was then married and I would be cold to, to my wife. You know, I would, if we were disagreeing about something, you know, I would, I would want to go for the jugular. I, I so rarely put myself in, in her shoes. And, you know, I, I since apologized for it, but it's, mm-hmm. it's so hard to see when you're in that place because you're in 
what feels like survival mode to you because you feel like your life is on the verge of being over. There's such a sense of doom and isolation and self-pity. And it's, I think it's one of the reasons I'm able to have some compassion for my mom is because I, I have been that person. And I'd like to think I'm not that person anymore, but um, it's it's hard to stomach when you look back at mm-hmm. your behavior and you embodied the things that you hate. Sure. I mean, this is probably what you, you were taught, right? This is what you saw and you probably had to do things to win over your mother's attention and and uh, this is what you're taught. This is the script that you learned. So you're likely to bring it to your romantic relationship, you know. And so this is what you knew because this is what was imbued in you. What's our next one on the list? <laughs> yes, um, I would say. Uh, I mean, it gets into the lack uh, lack of empathy, but really not uh, when when your partner doesn't really have an awareness of how his or her uh, actions impact other people. So uh, they're just out of touch with you know, what they do to people and, and how belittling uh, the waiter, more, like the waiter. Uh, exactly. And, and I mean, it obviously comes from a lack of empathy and not, not being able to connect in that way, not having that awareness. Uh, and so it's the, partner is often saying, you know, do you realize that, you know, that waiter just quit after you, right. you know, threw the sandwich at them and, and scream, they just took their apron off and left. You know, it's, it's just not realizing how your words and actions impact people and um, having this kind of denial and refusal to listen. Um, and that that's just crushing for a partner. It's really, really crushing. Do you think for that, I, I'm always fascinated by what is going on inside the mind of a narcissist. And, you know, one of the ways I feel I can get a little insight is, as I've said, I've been to some degree that person. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest fears that was driving my life before I got help was a fear that my life didn't matter, that I was forgettable, a feeling of invisibility. Mm-hmm. And the fear and the rage that would come up in me when I felt discounted or minimized or, or the worst left behind uh, it, it, my face would go red. It was, I could feel my central nervous system kind of freaking out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and today I'm, I'm able to sit with it, take a deep breath, not unleash it on that person, but I imagine for for somebody who's never really looked at it, um, they're stuck in that place of I don't matter. Uh, this is life or death for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that addiction to admiration, the the strategic placement of you know putting themselves in situations where they can be built up or admired. And when that when that narcissistic supply is taken away, it, it's devastating, and 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 the rage is there, and and just a, it's almost like annihilation anxiety, like everything's yeah. just going to come to a crashing halt. Yeah, very very painful, especially if that's what you've been taught, right? Especially mm-hmm. if that connects to some kind of childhood pain, conditional of, love. Yeah, 
absolutely. That's um, so the the empath or the the likely partner of a narcissist, the one who kind of feels for both people and is willing to sacrifice their boundaries to take care of someone. You know, the empath is goes into soothing mode, right, and and gets hurt along the way. But that is, it often becomes somebody else's job to pick up the narcissist. I think a really important thing for people to ask themselves when they're in a relationship with someone is, does does this person really truly try to take in what I'm saying? And is there any change in their their actions along the way? Or is there any real concerted effort to try to act differently in the future? Uh, because one of the things I've seen with narcissists is they can spin a great sentence, you know, they can say, I love you, you know, this and that. But if you look at their actions, that's where the, the real truth of, of who that person is, at least at that point in time. Yeah, absolutely. That's, uh, that's right. And that kind of chronic neglect, uh, you know, eventually a, a partner of a narcissist um, starts to really break down and, and feel this profound sense of uh, emptiness because their needs aren't, aren't being met and they're just kind of serving. It's very, very painful uh, to endure, especially when it's years of a relationship, mm-hmm. years of a marriage, and then a, a light bulb you know, goes off and you realize that this is the, this is the situation. It's very tricky. Um, something you remind me of um, it's in the beginning of, of couples therapy, something that I do is it's kind of like a screening device in some way is to, is to see if the couples can mirror one another. If, if people can mirror husband and wife, let's say can mirror one another. And that is one person shares uh, their perspective on something and how it made them feel. And then the partner just has to repeat it back to them. And very often a narcissist gets all confused and bitter and gets it totally wrong and isn't listening because they're caught in their defensiveness. And, you know, when all the wife says was said was, you know, when we go out in public, um, you don't defend me when somebody uh, makes me feel uncomfortable and something that is straightforward. Right. And uh, someone with narcissism couldn't uh, kind of hear it, metabolize it. And mirror it back. It's amazing how that how because they're they're stuck in defense attorney mode, <laughs> right? Yeah, right. They, it brings out all their defenses, and they just don't know how to hear the world from another perspective and 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 validate that. So it often shows there in this kind of mirroring uh, exercise. Do you think that that goes back to something in childhood where to make a mistake felt existentially threatening? absolutely it's it's you know a lot of uh uh people who struggle with narcissism it it often comes from uh experiencing a a brutal authoritarian critical um parent who uh made the children pay a heavy price for making a mistake being themselves for being themselves right um, so it's having that kind of overly punitive parent that breeds this in, in some children. 
I, 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 another thing that I see too is the parent who views the child as an extension of themselves, especially when they're out amongst their peers. So there, there's not a real seeing of who that child is, what their needs are. And the, the avalanche of criticism serves that narcissist in their belief that they're shaping this person up into who they need them to be so they can present them and gain more esteem among their peers in their mind. Yeah. It's a really horrible form of brainwashing that goes on in that way. And then it just takes a lot of work to have that perspective as, as a teenager or an adult to realize that, you know, you're not there to serve your parent in that way that you have to make your own decisions as to you know, your own reality and, and really understand what your own values are and make a distinction between, you know, if you're going to agree with something, your narcissistic parent um, once said, you know, something they tried to instill in you, that's okay, but it's a conscious choice. But as an adult, you have to kind of make, make your own decision, whether you're going to perpetuate that or you're going to rectify it. That's part of it. Uh, I, I think another thing that you see a lot of times when you're in a relationship with somebody as a narcissist is is when you express your feelings, you're told that you're too sensitive. Is, yeah. is that something that you find to to be oh, the absolutely. case? Absolutely, oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, vulnerability uh, is is punished like crazy. This is something that the narcissists struggle with. They they cannot make themselves vulnerable. Uh, and and they look down upon it, and it's very very hard to do. Um, so yeah, when when a partner is overly or emotional, or when anyone seems overly emotional or revealing their cards in some way, um, narcissists will frown upon that. Um, and some great expression of emotion is you get shamed for that by a narcissist. Um, this is why this whole movement of you know, vulnerability, learning to be vulnerable is, is so powerful. Because, it's so huge. Yeah. It's so huge. Mm-hmm. It's really, uh, it's really necessary, but you know, not in the, not in the social media public kind of way necessarily, you know, more, I don't think that's as powerful because I think there's some other motive there. Usually I, I it's, it's more about with the people you love and care about people with whom you want to mend the relationship. Yeah. Uh, goes a long way but you can't do it with a narcissist you really can't uh that yeah, you usually end up you know getting burned for that anything else on the list um well i i think i think uh it's it's important maybe to shift a little bit into uh you know what what you can kind of do in these situations, it'll bring to light some of the other scenarios where you would be able to identify who is a narcissist. But it's, it's, I think it's important to be able to um, uh, know your your boundaries and be able to uh, convey when you feel like your partner has crossed the line and and to be able to make that clear because you would know that your partner is a narcissist if they don't let you have boundaries. If you just have to serve them and give up boundaries, you know, when someone is, is recovering from 
a relationship with a narcissist very often it's it's about learning your boundaries what you're willing to do and what you're not willing to do and sometimes that connects to your values um it connects to self-preservation um but I, I, it's very important to kind of uh, be able to know your your boundaries and you know learn what is okay and what's not okay and when the narcissist has crossed the line it's something that has to be verbalized it's something that has to be declared but you know narcissists make people feel like there there is no boundary and they just have to give something up um in order to be with them and and it it often makes people feel like they're not uh like they're going crazy there's a mm-hmm. gaslighting component to that it's people feel like they're not there's just something off they're not feeling like uh it's their own emotions and and you know establishing boundaries is something that that really helps in in that situation and and feeling drained uh by that person that's Mm -hmm. which can be really difficult if it's a a friend who is going through something difficult but Mm -hmm. they're treating it narcissistically and it it's so hard because you want to be there for them but they're they just they they make it so much about them that they have no sense that you know, asking you to talk for three hours a day, every day for two months, because they're, you know, pining over their ex uh, and no asking, how how are you doing? I mean, mm-hmm. that's an extreme example, but I do hear from people who have friends like that and who enable that kind of behavior. One of the most important things that I learned in my support group, you know, everybody that rolls into a support group is, is, not going to get well is not going to do the work there are people that will still make it about them to a degree that it's that it's draining and and i had to find a way of expressing myself to those people that set boundaries but didn't shame them and the thing that i started saying was i care about you i'm flattered that you call me and we talk on the phone but it doesn't feel like a conversation to me and I feel like an audience member. And, and then I start to feel resentful and I don't want to feel resentful at you. So I is uncomfortable as it is to speak up. I had to say this and then look at how that person handles that. I had one friend who never called me again. Mm-hmm. And I had another friend who took it in and is better ab- about it when we do talk. Sure. That's a very powerful intervention to, to do that. So it's likely if someone's ready to hear that and, and they, they care deeply about you and you're not just serving their needs, uh, that, that can be something that is a game changer for someone yeah. to hear it from a good friend. And other people literally cannot handle that mm-hmm. and the relationship ends there. And that's a good thing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I was, I was glad, you know, the good news when you express your feelings, the ball is in that other person's court and their character would be revealed. So you will have the information about what to do next. That's the great thing other than taking care of yourself. It's just, uh, if you were to look at it strictly as a chessboard, it's a great move. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. There's, this, especially if you're feeling like you are just giving everything and totally drained and kind of bitter in the friendship and seeing that uh, you're not getting much out of it. Uh, it sometimes feels good to be helpful, but if it's uh, 
only about their needs, that can really kind of grind on your nerves mm. and, and make you feel very unsatisfied and, and used. And so it's, it's important to identify who those people are and, and, and renegotiate the boundaries or end the friendship. And the, the thing that I've discovered is you have to be willing to give consequences if the boundaries are violated, because otherwise you're just enabling that person. And I've seen, I don't know what you would call it, secondary narcissism, where somebody drains me talking about the person that's draining them. And, and then I have to speak up and say, you know, why do you keep hanging out with this person when they mistreat you? What, what are you getting from it? And I've said before, I think you're addicted to feeling bad about this person. I think they, that, that there is something that you are getting from this. I don't know if it's a feeling of superiority or it's a misguided attempt at, at compassion, but it's affecting our relationship. And so that might be something to, to look at. It's really hard to say that to, to somebody to know when to say it because we want to be there for our friends, but there's this continuum where it begins to, to edge into um, enabling. and right. You have to have your limits yeah. in terms of how you manage that. And usually coming from love, coming from support, building them up to make them you know, understand how much you appreciate them. And then saying what your experience is and how you're there for them. But, you know, maybe, uh, um, you know, it's time for them to think about what's really best for them, uh, knowing how hard it is, you know, empathizing with that sense of how hard it must be for them. Um, but not playing too much into the, the, the victim role that they may be taking. Nice. Uh, it's very challenging what you're describing. Very, right. very challenging to manage. And and I think an important factor too is does that person have a choice in hanging out with that toxic person? Because if they do, that's an issue they really need to look at because there is a probability that that extends into other areas of their their life where where it's camouflaged. But if that person, for instance, a teenager stuck with a narcissistic parent, to me, that's a completely different situation. You know, maybe they they're thinking about calling child services or uh, they're getting ready to leave the house, but they're leaving a sibling behind who they believe is experiencing some form of abuse. You know, whenever I get an email from somebody about that, I always say, please go to therapy. You know, I, I cannot give you advice on this. This is way beyond any experience or opinion that I have, because this involves legalities and and stuff that has real, real life consequences. What would you say when, for instance, the the sibling that is um, getting ready to leave the house and they have a parent who is maybe not overtly abusing their sibling, but it's a really toxic, unhealthy environment. And they're afraid that calling child services or reporting would shatter the marriage. Maybe the younger sibling would be removed from the home. They don't want to be cut out of their family. Um, What do you do? What do you advise in that situation as a therapist? I suppose you would have to report them. Report uh, yeah, the abuse it depends parent. on the nature of the abuse. If it's if it's severe, absolutely. Uh, but 
it's yeah, give us some I, examples of of what would be um, not severe enough, what would be a tough call, and what would be clear. Oh, some examples of that. Yeah, if you can oh, think of any. If there's clear abuse going on where the uh, child is is showing um, problematic behaviors, if there's suicidal ideation, if if there's noticeable signs of, of abuse. Uh, visual signs, um, if if the uh, child isn't functioning at all in, in school or, or otherwise, uh, if they're withdrawn and distant, um, and, um, you know, a, a milder version w- would be, you know, if it seems like uh, the child is able to, to function well and, and has enough strong support to be able to, to manage it. Cause usually if you have one or two really strong uh, parental figures, um, things can, can go your way in this situation. You know, it, it can, if you have a narcissistic parent and, and let's say a really loving grandmother and then the other parent is, is strong and, and, and has the self-awareness, it's really serves as, as a buffer. It can really be, quite helpful. And, uh, but I think it's more about how the child is functioning. Um, and if it seems like there's uh, some psychopathology uh, that's manifesting as, as a result of, of the abuse, but it's, it's very hard to uh, make that, that judgment call. I remember uh, when I was a young psychologist, uh, you know, learning how to manage this in, in, in uh, clinic in, in Manhattan and then in hospital in Manhattan I, it made me the most anxious, you know, I, I was speaking to my supervisor constantly because you, you just feel like so much is on the line in that situation. Like you could wreck a family. Um, I, I, it's very hard to make that distinction. And, and I think people who make that distinction all the time, they kind of know, and, right. and they will speak to someone else just to get a, a reality check to get a second opinion. But Ooh, that's a hard one. Right. Like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, for instance, of maybe a parent who yells a lot and occasionally breaks something. You know, is that enough to, to warrant child protective services? Probably not. Yeah. Probably not. And yet it's so damaging for that child because so they damaging, feel unsafe. Yeah. They are not. No yeah, healthy yeah. tools are being modeled for how to handle yeah. feelings. I cut you off. You're going to say. No, something. no, no. It's OK. It's a, it's, a, it's a very hard judgment call, but yeah, that's, I, I think it's more when you can show that there's damage being done. Um, but I, I would imagine in modern culture, especially in the uh, quarantine, parents throwing things is probably standard parental behavior. <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to make light of it, but I, I, I think uh, these things are very common, you know, where uh, you have one parent who's just absolutely losing it and doing things that are hurtful to the, to the child, but I know you're talking about something more severe. And again, I don't mean to minimize it, but um, yeah, that, that's a tough, tough uh, judgment call. uh, I can't, I can't, I admire the people who have to make that decision because it's heavy burden to have to do that to a family. And the thing I try to remind that, that sibling who's getting ready to leave the house is Mm -hmm. this is not on you. This is not on you. Your younger siblings are not your responsibility. I'm not telling you to not care about them, Mm -hmm. but don't take on the guilt that it's up to you to save them. 
Right. I I think in that that's right. Some some um you know older children who are leaving the house will um will be so stuck on being that protector and and they'll deal with the guilt of leaving but they may only be able to kind of live with themselves if they've um given an ultimatum to the parent um you know that they will bring the house down if something happens right if mm-hmm. if my younger sibling tells me that you've done this or that you know that's it because very often the narcissist is doesn't want to be publicly shamed mm-hmm. they don't want to you know the world to know how bad things are so that that can be very powerful uh as a deterrent but again you're right that that can be a heavy heavy burden and i mean it really depends on the family dynamics and what the other parent is what stance the other parent takes and are there any other people involved but yeah that is very very difficult um and um it's it's a definitely a heavy burden to carry on to college if that's what's yeah. happening you're leaving a another sibling behind but in some cases if if it seems like there's a lot of damage going on you know calling protective services may be a a good option yeah but it's really very specific to each family. Uh, anything else that uh, you wanted to share? Um, well, I, I thought just to kind of give, um, kind of give a little uh, something concrete for people to do if they felt like uh, they wanted to try to make it work with uh, a partner who's on the narcissistic side. Is is that okay to go into that a little? Yeah, bit? of course. Okay. Um, I, I you know, if if you are in a relationship with a narcissist and and you really want to make it work, either because you have children or there are financial issues or or, or otherwise, um, I think there's a few things to to think about in this situation. One is, as I've talked about, the boundaries and establishing what you're willing to do and what you're not willing to do, and be willing to deal with the the consequences of telling your narcissistic partner. Um, that there are certain things you're not willing to do. In other words, having a, a limit um, will definitely trigger a, a narcissist, but it's something that is very, very empowering um, to do, to kind of know your limits, to know your boundaries. Um, a, another thing would, would be to really take time to, to know yourself and know what matters to you, know what your values are, know what you, you feel like is, is, is right and wrong and what you're willing to endure and and really knowing yourself is part of the key because one of the the major weapons of the the narcissist is this kind of gaslighting and convincing uh partner of things that that are not really true so if you if you're really self-aware you're able to call these things out if it's like feeling something that doesn't feel like you're feeling or when something doesn't doesn't line up um properly you know that's that's a sign um to kind of figure out what your own personal truth is and that can be very, very powerful. Um, and, and then you have to have really reasonable expectations with, with a partner who is a narcissist, right? It's kind of like a lowering your expectations 12 levels, right? What are you really going to get out of the relationship? You can't expect a narcissistic partner to do this and that. You just have to stop expecting it. Um, you know, that's, that's a, a, big, a big part of it. And also to try to study the tactics of the narcissistic partners that you know when they're um 
doing their tricks to try to manipulate you, you kind of know their manipulation so you can call them out. And that, that's really, you know, what you need to be kind of armed with and to, and to change your language, mm-hmm. to change the way you communicate so that you're not using the language of a victim because they will use that against you. Um, like saying One- how, how they do something and how that makes you feel that that's sort of something that a narcissist would, would see as an example to pounce that would give them, you know, authorization to, you know, do that thing again, that made you feel guilty or, 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 sad. So you, you, you use more of the kind of, I feel this way language, as opposed to, you know, when you didn't congratulate me, you know, that made me feel horrible. Not this kind of statement. That's something that narcissists um, use against you. One of the things in my experience uh, is that narcissists, as you, as you mentioned, have a really hard time with somebody having an opinion that differs from them. And the, I w- would like to know if this is something uh, you see a lot is that people begin to ca- capitulate to that person because the narcissist is so invested in winning that they will go to any length. They, they will argue for two hours, just sticking to their point of view rather than co- trying to take in what somebody else thinks is that is that something absolutely absolutely some people are psychologically beaten down to the point where they can't even bother it's so painful to go into that kind of uh disagreement uh you you know what kind of pain you're going to get you've been i mean think of it this way think of it as you know the the criticism of the narcissist becomes your Mm self-talk so you're already not feeling good about yourself to be able to defend yourself and um, there's also kind of a fog that a lot of people describe. It's almost like a confusion, um, not really having your thoughts straight in these situations. And that is something that is a result of being kind of victimized over a long period of time by someone who uh, makes you have to serve their needs and who doesn't let you have your own life and your own success and your own opinion. And um, that there's this kind of, mental fog that just things feel confusing and you just can't even bother to get into it. Yeah. You know, a disagreement. Cause it's just, it's almost like something comes over you and you just kind of submit. Yeah. One of the th- things that my ex said when she began getting to know my family and, and spending time around my mom was mm-hmm. she was struck by how she, afraid of her we all were. And she would say, it's like she does something and it's like she leaves a grenade in the room and you all just run. And I think it's because we know that saying, hey, that was a grenade you tossed is going to take up the next hour is she's going to play the martyr for a while. It's going to be used later. It'll be brought up, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's just easier to lower your head and get away. And my ex felt so abandoned uh, because she was left there in a room with a ticking grenade and she would not back down from uh, what she could see was, was just a, in many ways, a selfish, sick woman. What was that interaction? Like then she would stick around and say something or just, yeah. Yeah. She stood up to my, to my mom. Um, And of course, you know, I, 
that put me in between them, mm-hmm. which was awful. And I don't fault my ex for it at all. Um, I think she wanted what was best for me, but I was not ready to see the truth as it was because there was covert sexual incest that I did not want to face. You know, Mm -hmm. it was very under the radar. It was not overt, but it was a sexualizing. And, and my ex said this, the first night she met my mom, she said, she creeps me out. I don't like the way she touches you or talks to you. And it took me 20 years to, to finally see. Um, and so I, in my mind, I justified it that she just hates my mom. She just wants to, to mm-hmm. make this uncomfortable. She can't just let it go. Right. And, you had to, over the years, come up with an elaborate system of justifications. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, you would just implode if you didn't have these defense mechanisms in place to be able to deny it or minimize it. Or uh, this is how you survived, literally right. how you survived. Yeah. Any other suggestions for somebody looking to get out um, of? Uh... No, I, I think um, uh, I think I about summed it up, um, but it's a very difficult. Uh, topic because uh, it seems like uh, these days with with uh, the way we're going uh, where everybody wants to be an influencer and all the the social media um, uh, going on it's just it's creating you know a a whole generation of of narcissists in some ways so it's I feel like in the way I'm on the front lines and trying to um, kind of hold up a mirror for people to see like, do you yeah. really want that? Do you, is this what right. you really, really want? So anyway, that's, it's a, a very challenging time in that way. Let's uh, plug some of your stuff. Speaking to social media where people, if they want to read some of the stuff that you've written or contact you and ask you a, a question, if you're okay with that, uh, you sure. want to give some of that stuff out? Sure. Thank you very much. Uh, so my private practice website uh which is located in Manhattan. Uh, my website is manhattanpsychologist.com. And um, if you want to uh, reach out, if you have a question or you're interested in, in therapy, it's um, drkushnik at gmail. So D-R-K-U-S-H-N-I-C-K at gmail.com. And uh, some of my writing is, is on the Huffington Post. And I have my own um, blog that uh, I run it's called Tech Healthiest. That's T E C, and then the word healthiest.com. That that has a, a lot of my uh, writing on happiness. And, There's some great uh, stuff in there that we didn't even get a chance to get to. We're going to have to have you back on the on oh, the show. Thank you. I, that would be wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, how to and take a healthy time. selfie, which kind of made me laugh when I when I saw it at first, and then I read it, and I was like, oh, this is great. This is yeah. this is. Did you see the video? I have a oh, video. Uh, no, I have not. I'm yeah. not, but it, it, it made sense because one of the things, the gist of it was, um, and maybe I'm misinterpreting it, but was mindfulness and saying, what is my intent and in trying to ingrain some spirit of, of community in there rather than self-aggrandizement. That's right. And also not to trigger your insecurities during a selfie, right? It brings out the worst in people when they're perfectionism. doing perfectionism. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and, and yeah, that's, 
actually learned a lot of this from, from, from my wife, who's a natural uh, psychologist, you yeah. know, um, without going to school. Um, a lot of that was her idea. I have to credit her with that. Um, but yeah, so I, I would love to come back if that's a, if that's an option one day, please. Thank, yeah. thank you very much. Yeah, but yeah, absolutely. how to take a healthy selfie is one of my favorites. And, and there's a kind of a silly YouTube video that, that can be found that goes with that. Um, it's, it's somewhere on the list. No duck lips. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't learn that concept until after the, Oh my God. But yeah, that's, that's all silly stuff that that's hard to stomach if you really give it a lot of attention. Uh, and then another thing you wrote that uh, I thought was great is the um, your habit of pointing out other people's faults is ruining your life, which is, Oh, it's such an important, such an important topic. Uh, yeah, that's a good one. Any, anything else? Uh, where are you on Twitter? No, I'm not. I'm not on Twitter. Uh, good for I'm you. On, uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm on there, but I'm not really on there. Right. Um, yeah, I, I, I try to I minimize it. I, I try to do more, more writing. Um, and I have a sort of another persona that I'm working on as a hobby, uh, as, as a magician, um, that's doing, starting awesome. to do mental health magic. So oh I'm, my I'm God. working on some material to be able to teach children, um, just life skills while including magic. Uh, and that's going to be kind of a, a, something I'm doing on YouTube and started doing, um, parties and I'm trying to kind of bring that joy and wonder to kids in need, but that's just sort of a new topic. And I'm, I'm Dr. Magical. I love anything that, that can get through to, to kids. Uh, have you seen the documentary in and of itself? I have not seen it yet. You have to I've watch really, it. I've fallen behind in some of my uh, my lists. Um, I, people rave about it, and the magicians rave about it. It's so, so up your must alley because yeah. it's about mental health, and and mm -hmm. it, and it's related to obviously that's, that's he's an amazing I, magician. I, I yeah, to see it. Uh, Doctor Kushnick, thank you so so much. Oh, thank you for having me. Many thanks to uh, Doctor Kushnick. Uh, let's jump into some surveys. Got a lot of surveys. I don't know if I'll make it through all of these. Uh, what I'm saying is I'm, I might die in the next in the next 45 minutes. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living? as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a gender-fluid person who refers to themselves as, I like dogs, 94. They identify as bisexual. They're in their 20s, were raised in a uh, slightly dysfunctional environment, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Some stuff with a guy in high school that I wasn't into but didn't say no to has always stayed with me and bothered me, not in a major way, though. Any positive experiences with the abuser? Yes. Most of my abuse came from people I regarded as very good friends who ended up making me feel like shit but still wanting their approval. Very confusing. But luckily, those people are out of my life now. It's so hard when you're young, too, to to know what's healthy and, and what isn't, especially if you were raised in dysfunction. Darkest thoughts. I sometimes wish I would get into some sort of accident. Not not too serious. Just enough that I'd be able to take a break and be in the hospital for a bit. Not for the attention, but for just a reason to not have to try as hard. I definitely have some form of, quote, unwanted thought syndrome, as Maria Bamford calls it. And my anxiety makes it incredibly difficult to ward off these thoughts, sometimes making it difficult to interact with people or leave my house darkest secrets. I've struggled with self-harm and an eating disorder since high school. The older I get, the more ashamed I become when I self-harm because in my mind, it seems like an adolescent thing to do. I also have intrusive thoughts of death and dying and need to knock on wood three times and repeat, I will not die today. Nothing bad is going to happen to me today. No one I love is going to die anytime soon because I leave the house every day. I also keep a list of everything I dislike about the important people in my life in a notebook. I also make that list over and over about myself as well. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I don't really have any sexual fantasies. Maybe when I'm starting to like someone, I'll think about them and what we could do together. But all in all, I'm not a very sexual person and it doesn't matter much to me. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I wish I could tell people that I'm sharing my problems with. She doesn't have to immediately go into action and try to come up with a solution to the problem. This is what professionals are for. Friends and family are for listening. Ugh. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could fucking force my family to understand my mental illnesses because so far nothing has truly gotten through their skulls. And that is such... Oh my God, that's such a a hamster wheel to be caught on is to just, you know, as they say in recovery, to keep going to the hardware store for milk. And eventually we just got to go, wow, I I think I got to lower my expectations. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, I've talked in depth about these things with my two closest friends and they always agree and say they have these same exact problems with their families. How do you feel after writing these things down? It feels interesting. I'm not sure if I'm going to submit it, to be honest. It's very hard to think sometimes and to write down my thoughts, and I know I'm going to leave something out. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? 
Let's get coffee. That sounds good to me. Thank you for sharing that stuff. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Zach. And uh, about his depression, he writes, Sure, I can go to grad school, work, apply to PhD programs, get myself on meds, find a better therapist, and try to stay in shape. But I can't call to schedule an appointment to look at a new apartment because of my anxiety. Must mean I'm an entire failure. About his anxiety. Am I happy? Or am I just tricking myself? Or do I even have anxiety? Or am I making it all up? Guess I'll just suffer here in purgatory. Oh, that is a good one. About his codependency. Like when I try to affirm myself or tell myself it's okay, I'm just repeatedly trying to get a worn piece of tape to stick to my arm and it just won't go. Snapshot from his life. Not getting in it in assistantship because I spent six hours trying to record a one-minute video about why I'm a good applicant to the program and coming across as neurotic and needy. Oh, buddy. Thank you for sharing those. This is from the love survey filled out by dry humping at the sock hop. Do they still have sock hops? Uh, I love that even after a year of designing and illustrating nonstop at home, I can still have days like today when I'm inspired a thousand different ways and not thinking of all the shitty things that have happened in the last 16 years. I love that one. Oh, there's nothing, nothing better than creative inspiration and having the energy to follow through on it. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Restless in Seattle. She is in her 20s. Uh, doesn't uh, specify how she identifies sexually. She was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, two answers. One, yes, and I never reported it. And another one, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. My older sister used to touch me inappropriately when we were very young. It wasn't until later that I found out that my father, not my sister's biological father, molested her before that. Then my cousin would make me do sexual stuff with her when I was between the ages of 7 and 12. Also, one of the guys who was trying to woo my mom would try to get on her good side by getting close to me. He got too close. He was always touching my privates, and if I sat on his lap, he would have an erection. I was nine. My feelings are conflicted. My dad left when I was three, so I'm mad at him for molesting my sister, mad at him for leaving, mad at him for not caring about me, but desperate for him to, at the very least, wonder if I'm doing okay. I'm mad at my mom for not protecting my sister. I'm mad at her for falling for him. I'm ashamed all the time for everything. I feel pathetic for being so self-centered because all I can think about is how fucked up I am as a result. I've never had a comfort, comfortable sexual encounter. Nine out of ten partners have at some point forced me into sexual intercourse. And part of me enjoys that. She's been physically abused and emotionally abused. When I was 15, I was in an abusive relationship that lasted all through college. Uh which was seven to eight years. He told me what to do, what to wear, who to hang out with, what I should and shouldn't say. If he got enraged, he would smack me. Not often, but enough times to instill fear in me. 
We broke up in 2011, and I'm still not over it. I still feel like I love him, and I've realized that he took my father's place. He was that paternal figure I was yearning for all along, so it's been difficult to let go, but it feels pathetic to hold on. Isn't it amazing the disconnect between our emotional self and our intellectual self, how we can know that something is so not healthy for us, but there, it's like our central nervous system or some part of our brain just longs. It's just, just like it, there's an itch that only a certain thing will scratch. Any positive experiences with abusers? Yes, my ex-boyfriend. I have to force myself to think of the bad times so that I can snap back into reality. But I only think of how protected I felt when I was with him. I remember how much we laughed and how he would take care of me. Darkest thoughts. I'm always thinking about being forced into a sexual encounter, uh, and in parentheses, and I like it. Or about women. I don't have any romantic feelings towards women, but they turn me on, and I'm so ashamed of that. I'm not a homophobe, but I think it's because it brings up terrible memories. Where are your darkest secrets? I always think about people who've really hurt me when I masturbate. That's what gets me off. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell my mom that I'm disappointed in her for being so weak and that I hate that I'm just like her, but it hurts me so much because I feel like it's ungrateful of me to feel that way. It is not ungrateful of you to feel that way. You know, our feelings are our feelings, and it's what we do with them that, that matters. It's not about punishing the other person. It, it, to me, it's about processing it so that we can stop punishing ourselves by living with that open wound. She did her best. And why don't I hate my father? Why don't I want to say those things to him? Why is it that I'm always ready to attack the people who are in my corner and not the people who hurt me? Oh my God, is that this $64,000 question? So many people, so many people relate to that. You are not alone in that one. What, if anything, do you wish for? Peace. That's it. I just want to stop feeling shame. I want to be at peace with myself. I recommend a book by John Bradshaw called Healing the Shame That Binds. It's, it's, I think you would get a lot out of it. Have you shared these things with others? No, I hate myself. I can't even face myself, much less other people. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel better. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I hope this helps. If you have any suggestions on how I can overcome this guilt and shame, please share because I don't. Again, I would recommend that book, Healing the Shame That Binds by John Bradshaw. This is from the Love Survey filled out by Jameson, and uh, they write, I love dimly lit rooms. I love looking at my dilated pupils, uh, and in parentheses, not dilated from drugs, in the dimly lighted mirror. I have beautiful eyes, and when they fully dilate, the dark edges of my iris blend with the pupil, making an all-black iris. And then uh, they put a quote in from Dominique Cole that says, I can see the world in your eyes. That's what I told the mirror man. Thank you for that, Jameson. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Anon. 
And he write, and this is a, a snapshot from his life. And uh, he writes, after almost a year of eating next to nothing and exercising excessively, I didn't realize the damage I was doing to my body. I just told my mom I wasn't pooping very often, so we went to a few doctors. No one figured out the truth behind these issues. My mom is a religious nut job, so at some point she took me to a holistic healer. She had me lie on a table while she burned incense and swept a huge feather around. The stuff she did was so stupid that it infuriated me that things had come to this point. I realized how what I was doing had brought me here and vowed to return to eating normally. I'd probably be close to dead if I kept doing what I was doing. And the irony is it worked. It worked in a really fucked up way. The incense and the feather worked. One of the things that I, I really believe in when we want help, you know, when we want to change is to not judge the form that it comes in. And what a great example yours is. Not that I believe in that stuff, but the universe sometimes has a, a, an interesting way of getting help to us. This is from the Love Survey filled out by Queen Clover. And uh, they write, I love coming back from a grocery trip from my local fancy mart and unloading the bags. I'm a rather frugal spender to the point of borderline malnourishment, buying only uh, sales staples. Occasionally, I feel spendy and will take a trip to the local fancy mart and wander the aisles and toss in the cart whatever strikes my fancy. Stuffed grape leaves, fresh figs, spicy tuna rolls, raspberry peach preserves, tiramisu, a T-bone with the most perfect marbling. I pay no mind to the total upon checkout, and when I get home and start unpacking the bags, I look at the hall on my kitchen table and get so excited I don't know what I'm going to eat first. I just know it looks like a spread laid out for royalty. Oh, do I love that. And what a great example of self-care. You know, for people that are going through addictions or any type of withdrawal from, from compulsive behavior, uh, Finding ways to replace that deprivation with a healthy abundance is so huge. It's so huge. And it can really help getting to the place where uh, we can experience some some self-love, at the very least, less self-hatred. This is filled out by, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself No Name. He... uh, identifies as a non-practicing bisexual. He's in his 30s, was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, I would say it absolutely counts. When I was 17 or 18, I got drunk at an older friend's house. At that time, I had known her for four years, and I was her son's godfather. She was in her mid to late 20s. She put me in her room to sleep it off. And being so close with her, I didn't think anything about it. Sometime later, I felt something weird happening to my privates. It turns out she had undid my pants, pulled them down, and was, was performing oral sex on me in my sleep. In a heartbeat, I pushed her away and walked home. I never talked to her or saw my godson again. He's been physically and emotionally abused. I was married for five years. During that time, my wife convinced me I had an anger problem. She constantly asked me to take a more fatherly role with her her two 
girls from a previous marriage. And when I would, she would tell me I was wrong in front of the girls. I have a lot more examples, but that was the first thought. Any positive experiences with abusers? Honestly, the most positive experience was going to couples counseling with her. During our first visit, the therapist validated my feelings and helped me see my ex-wife was abusive. FYI, my ex never went back to therapy with me. That's the great thing about taking an action, putting something out there like let's go to counseling or, you know, something that, that puts the ball in your partner's court because then you give them an opportunity to reveal their commitment to the relationship and their character. And then you have, then you can make a more informed decision. Darkest thoughts. I have a lot of suicidal thoughts. I would never do it, but it's always in my thoughts about work, money, love, being bored, anytime I upset someone. Darkest secrets. I've never really acted upon my dark secrets. Sexual fantasies. Most powerful to you. Not my mother, but hearing or reading incest stories and watching mother-son incest porn. It's scary to share that. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my father, why did you stop talking to me when I was 16, but continued to talk to my older brother? What, if anything, do you wish for? To wake up and be excited to live that day. Have you shared these things with others? I haven't found anyone I feel comfortable enough to tell. How do you feel after writing these things down? Scared and childish. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Yeah. Am I normal? What's wrong with me that made my dad leave? Will I always play the victim? Well, I'm going to guess that your dad leaving had zero to do with you and your dad and his demons was what happened. Your dad's fear of intimacy or responsibility. But I imagine that is a hard thing to feel when you experience that that kind of loss or abandonment and the other thing that i would share is that what you experienced you know was a form of of rape um it doesn't really matter what the term is but that that was an illegal act that that person and a damaging traumatizing act and a lot of people think it's different because it's a woman doing it to a guy, but it, it is no different. You're still dehumanizing somebody. You're still objectifying them. You're still taking away their rights and and humiliating them. And that that needs to be processed. Don't don't keep that inside. Sending you love. Speaking of loves, this is from the love survey filled out by Dog Mom. She writes, I love my nightly routine with my dog. I lay in bed for about five to ten minutes while she stays out on the couch, and when she decides she's ready, she heads in. I love hearing her toenails clack on the kitchen tile as she slowly wanders towards the room. I love hearing her slurp up her last drink of water of the night. When she jumps on the bed, she walks up to the head of the bed and waits for me to lift up the blanket for her. She then proceeds to walk head first under the covers and collapses on her side, her back pressed into my front. We spoon like this until she gets too hot 
and she crawls back out and sleeps, facing me with her head on a pillow. Also, in the morning, she refuses to get out of bed until I'm up and about, which always melts my heart. Oh. We read a lot of the, the pet owner ones on loves, but I never get tired of, of hearing them. Thank you for that. This is a, a shame and secret survey filled out by uh, a guy who calls himself padded up. Um to the question, what gender are you? Uh, he wrote man, but then uh, writes, I have often wondered if I am trans female, but my body is very clearly physical male, and most of the time I think and act like a man. More about this below. Uh, he's in his 30s, identifies as straight, uh, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. I've only recently begun to self-classify this experience as abuse. At around age 10 to 12, I was on vacation with my family, which included eight cousins, several aunts and uncles, and assorted other family members. The oldest cousin of our family tribe was four years older than me and male. One day, the majority of the family went to do some activity with each other. They went to the store or something, and others took naps, leaving my 14 to 16-year-old cousin and I alone. He invited me into a room and pressured me to take off my clothes. I did. I was confused. I wanted him to think I was cool. I didn't know what was normal or appropriate. He took his clothes off, too. He started talking to me about my body, my penis, my lack of pubic hair, etc. He showed me his body. I didn't want to see his body. I didn't want him to see mine. But like I said above, I wanted, me, I wanted him to include me in his, quote, cool club. I always felt like an outsider, unloved, etc., I presume because my dad was an addict and absent through my childhood and teen years. I'm still in occasional contact with this person. I've never spoken of it with him or really with anyone. I think I may have told some therapists over the years, but none of them ever thought it was of any significance. I'm afraid that his actions have scarred me and still affect certain behavior slash script patterns in my mind and life. I also wonder if his actions have affected my sexuality and how. I don't hate him or have a great deal of anger for what he did. More pity and especially compassion for myself. I sometimes wonder if there was other abuse from other people that happened when I was little because I have repre- that I have repressed or, f- quote, forgotten because of a paraphilia I have and also my gender questioning. I also had the thought that I may have had some other childhood abuse, but no memories have ever surfaced. He's been emotionally abused. As a young teen from 12 to 17, but probably even younger, I felt the weight of the world on my shoulders due to things my mother would share with me about her life. She had been divorced twice by the time I was 12. My dad, her first husband, was an addict and out of control. Her second husband had been quite abusive emotionally and verbally to me and her, and she ended up using me as her emotional crutch counselor friend. And that's, at least that's how I felt about it. She would tell me about her financial problems. She would complain and talk with me about her small business, issues with employees and customers, etc. She would gossip and tell me about all the different problems people in our family were having or conflicts they were having with her. All of this greatly stressed me out. Oh, buddy, do I fucking relate to that? I didn't know what to do about any of it. Couldn't do anything about it, and yet felt very, very enmeshed with her emotions about it. 
Later, after a traumatic incident that led to the death of a sibling, um, my mom used me as a support crutch for her grief. I was barely 17. I didn't know how the fuck to grieve myself, let alone help her. Yet, part of me felt proud and honored that she would share these things with me. And she would often tell me that I was the only person in her life she could share them with. Oh, that is so fucked up. And that she was much closer to me than my other siblings. I felt special. As an adult, I've come to believe that there was an incestuous component to this relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think she intentionally tried to hurt me, but it did hurt me. I've had to draw pretty strong boundaries with her as an adult in life, and this has been confusing and hard on her. The one time when I told her why I had backed off and not called her as much when I first started to distance myself from my own protection in my early 20s after I got married, she flew off the handle and threatened to commit suicide. Oh, that is so fucked up. Since then, I've continued keeping my distance, just not giving her all the nitty-gritty reasons why. My stepdad was very abusive emotionally to me, berating, perfectionistic would go on raving rage fits where he yelled if I did something uh, small that was wrong. My marriage lasted 10 years between he and... Oh, the marriage lasted 10 years between he and my mom. It was a relief when he left. I've had little contact since. I've, often I feel as though I channel him with my own kids. Any positive experiences with abusers? Absolutely, with my mom. She unquestionably loves me and would do almost anything for me and was hugely involved in my life and yet did a lot of things to hurt me. Even with my stepdad, we had moments when I felt as though he loved me or wanted to love me, but for the most part, not a lot of positives with him. Darkest Thoughts I sometimes fantasize or imagine myself to be a young girl, perhaps 8 to 14, sometimes younger. I imagine myself wearing dresses and flowery things, etc. I imagine my body without a penis or balls and with a vulva, uh, vagina instead. Sometimes these fantasies and daydreams involve sexual experimentation with my young female self and other young peers. I often end up feeling depressed and maybe a little despondent after these fantasies because in reality I'm an extremely hairy a uh, slightly overweight, manly, manly man with a beard, etc. This is part of why I've often wondered if I'm transgender. The thought has come to me for years and years. I guess some people wouldn't classify this as a dark thought, but I immediately go to the consequences of following through on such a thought, and they seem dark to me. I'm happily married with two kids. I crave to not repeat the errors of my parents, and it seems like far, far too much to give, to go forward the process of embracing a female self, transitioning, etc. Uh, sometimes I imagine myself putting my hands into the pants of perfect strangers standing in line at Starbucks or on the subway or whatever. I have never, nor would ever do this, but sometimes I get not an impulse, but just the thought in my head, like, what if? It scares me a little bit, and I feel ashamed about it. The strangers I think about doing this to are 100% female and sometimes even kids. Like I said, never have or never would act on it. I have imagined what it would be like to intentionally crash my car while driving. I don't want to die, but I've imagined what would happen if I were in an accident, get cared for by EMS, taken to a hospital, etc. 
I'm not sure what this is about, but I think perhaps something to do with a felt need for being nurtured and taken care of. When I'm out exercising in town, running, etc., and a dog barks at me and scares me, I imagine myself going incredible hulk on the dog and tearing it to pieces with my bare hands. I feel like I could be just absolutely enraged at the animal, imagining it attacking me. Sometimes I wish a dog would attack me so that I could destroy it. Similarly, I fantasize about killing intruders who break into our house. I kill them with the shotgun I have in the home or with a baseball bat or with a knife. Likewise, I tend to go berserk in these fantasies, just going crazy and violent, getting blood everywhere with rage. I think these might be tied to PTSD related to the traumatic incident when my brother was killed. I was there, could have been killed myself, wasn't, and couldn't save him. It was awful. It lives with me still. Oh, man. I'm so sorry you had to experience that. Darkest secrets. I have a diaper fetish slash paraphilia. I routinely wear diapers to bed, have suffered from some bedwetting as an adult, but also have intentionally wet the bed for years in order to get attention and justify wearing diapers to bed. I wear diapers in public, discreetly under my clothes, several times a week, sometimes to work. My wife knows about this and accepts it to a degree. She thinks it's icky for me to use them, which I like to do, but understands that it is not an impulse that will go away. I've told several therapists about it. I told my best friend about it. By and large, these conversations have helped me to accept this odd part of myself, to quit fighting it or feeling ashamed about it. In many ways, I feel at peace about the diaper thing. Ideally, I would choose to not have it, but it seems so deeply embedded that it's never going away and I need to accept that. At this point, my only hang-up on occasion is that it doesn't seem like a manly thing to do at all, like it screws with my sense of masculinity when I'm putting on a diaper, etc. Often I imagine what it would feel like to be a girl wearing diapers, etc. Sometimes I wear my wife's clothes when she's gone. I also sometimes put on women's clothes that are left in dressing rooms at stores when I enter them with my own men's clothes to try on. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Diapers used to be the most powerful. They are no longer. I felt horribly ashamed about them, etc. Since coming to acceptance, my relationship with diapers has changed. They are much more like a coping mechanism today. I wear them for comfort and for calming, like in a therapeutic sense. Some people take a warm bath. I put on a thick diaper. It's far, far less a sexual thing now. On occasion, my wife and I will use them in sex, but not very frequently. Uh, I watch some trans porn. Uh, All genders and shapes and sizes, trans men, trans women, in various stages of transition or non-transition. This turns me on the most. I also read transgender erotica. Sometimes I imagine myself to be a trans man with a physically male-looking body but with female sex organs. I feel very ashamed and very afraid of these fantasies. Also confused. I'm not sure if this is a kind of fetish of some sort or if I really do have genuine gender dysphoria. Uh, 
The aforementioned sexual fantasies involving me as a young girl and other people, quote, her age. Interestingly enough, the thought of me as an adult man having sex with or abusing actual children is odious and disgusting to me. I have no desire or intention to abuse kids, and I'm not sexually attracted to them. But if I'm fantasizing being a kid with other kids, does that mean I really am? I feel very confused and very scared by these fantasies. Also ashamed, but to a lesser degree. I've hardly talked about either this or the trans porn thing with anyone at all. My current therapist only, and even in this case, only in a roundabout way. What, what if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Honestly, no idea. I mean... I'd like to be able to talk with my wife about the transgender stuff in more detail, or my dad, who I now have a good relationship with and who is no longer in active addiction. I've mentioned it to my wife before, but only in a I'm curious what it would feel like to be a woman kind of way. I have such a masculine, I'm such a masculine looking man that I'm sure it sounds really weird. Also, my whole family culture is very, very homophobic and bound by traditional gender roles. Even my 90-year-old grandma still routinely makes gay jokes and mocks men who have effeminate qualities. I recently found a family photo that was old of a couple of uncles acting, quote, gay in a very mocking and degrading way. I don't think it was ever okay for me as a boy to explore all aspects of the male gender, which include not just traditionally masculine traits, but I think a much wider spectrum of options. Anyways, I'm too afraid to tell my wife about these things because I think she'd freak out. She has a whole pile of issues around her father that would trigger old stuff. It just doesn't feel worth it right now. What, if anything, do you wish for? I guess I wish I could be born again in a different female body and to grow up female. I'd wish for a calm, stable, affectionate, caring home environment where I wasn't forced to grow up too early, where I was nurtured, and I'd wish for uh, and guided and and mentored and set free when the time was right. I think I wish for some of those same things today, to be nurtured and touched and cared for. I don't really have anyone in my life right now who is able to do that for me, except me. I wish I could figure out how to offer those things for myself, because I do realize that even if I were a girl at one point, I would grow to be an adult. And all adults need to learn how to look after themselves, advocate for their own needs, etc. I don't know. All this feels so fucked up. Uh, I feel like a failure as a man for wanting to be cared for. Buddy, you are not a failure. The word you use. You are so not a failure. You got a lot on your plate emotionally. And uh, I'm just sending you some love, man. I am sending you some love. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel a little liberated. It's nice to put it on paper. I don't know what to do next, though. I feel trapped in the end and scared. I don't really feel like there's any reasonable action to take. It's just an empty, anonymous confession. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences. You're not alone, especially as it relates to fetishes or paraphilias. For God's sake, please know there is no chance you are the weirdest or freakiest person out there. Also, it isn't going to go away. You're stuck with it. Learn to accept it. 
regarding the transgender stuff? The fuck if I know. I'm the one that needs wisdom on this one. Oh, and therapy is awesome. Go check it out. Also, spiritual coaches and some pastors can be immensely helpful in putting context to some of this stuff. I, you know, I would add, as long as it's not, you know, a, a homophobic religion that wants you to pray the gay away or something like that. Uh, figuring out what your purpose is in life is challenging. I think this is something that spiritual leaders have to offer that is unique. Thank you for all of that, man. Thank you for all of that. You you went so fucking deep on that, and I, I appreciate it. Sending you a hug. Uh, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a, a woman who calls herself Famale, and um, she... Uh, deals with anxiety, anorexia, codependency, and PTSD, and a snapshot from her life. Mother's Day recently passed, and my mom chose to spend the day with my abuser, a family member, instead of me and my sister. Uh, I've forgiven him, but I'm not sure I've forgiven her. All week, I had intrusive thoughts while working from home, where they could come and harass me without interruption taking terror off the table when I know I shouldn't. By Friday, I told my boss I was molested as a child. I've never said those words out loud to anyone but my mom and sister, but lately I feel like they could spill out at any time. My boss was supportive and said four words that I don't think she could possibly know what it meant for me to hear. She said, you are safe here. My boss took that terror off the table in my workplace, and it means the goddamn world to me. I am desperately searching for a therapist so I can become a productive employee again. We are all hopeful that this can happen. Oh, man. High five, high 10, high fucking 15. I just so love hearing or reading about somebody being vulnerable and it being met with compassion and, and safety uh, ah, makes my day. And then finally, this is uh, from the love survey filled out by Warm Tea. And they write, I love my boyfriend's big, beautiful, yellowish green eyes when the sunshine hits them just right and they glow. I love when some people have just a hint of a lisp in the way they speak. I love the extreme silence of inches of untouched snow on the streets at 2 a.m. before the town has a chance to wake up. Oh, fuck, do I love that one. And this one, this one is completely foreign to me. I love when I kiss my hedgehog on the nose and she pretends to be grumpy about it just to end up bonking her nose onto my lips to try and get another kiss before curling up on my chest for a nap. That is fantastic. Oh, my God. I want to see that. I want to see that. If you can take a video of that, I want to see it. Well, I hope you guys got something out of this episode. And if you're struggling, just never forget that there there are like-minded, safe people out there in the world. It may be a challenge to find them, and it may be painful opening up to them, but it's the one of the greatest things that we can do and I think it's part of our purpose being human beings on this planet and never forget that you are not alone and thanks for listening everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way